日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へはい。One thing I didn't think to do was to mention how you can get these films, but I feel like most of them are probably available via Netflix. But anyway, that's the plan today, so we'll get right to it. But before we get started, I just want to thank our patrons on Patreon. You guys are awesome. And if you are a listener of the podcast and you're interested in seeing what you can do to help out, please go to patreon.com slash samuraiarchives. You know, it has some of the standard stuff like、uh, early access to new episodes, access to bonus audio, things like that. But check it out. There might be something there that you're interested in. And every little bit helps, and it's always appreciated. And it's what drives this podcast. So, thanks again to the patrons on Patreon, and let's get started. All right, so we've got、uh, Mike and Michael. So, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? Okay, I'll start off on the Samurai Archives. You may know me as Wicked Amon. Not Lemon. Looks like Lemon, but it's Amon. <laughs> I'm still going with lemon. <laughs> yeah, I know. I pretty much accept at this point. I think the handle's been changed to Wicked L. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I always thought lemon was fully acid, like、um, bleak humor. But,、um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I've been on the archives, God, now since、um, Toshi and Matsu or Hojo Takemune were on the air. Yeah, probably about 2006 or something. Yeah, earlier. Earlier. Yeah. But yeah, you're definitely the resident、uh, film and TV expert as far as the、uh, dramas go,、uh, by, by far, I would say. And Yakuza films, hopefully. True. All right. Then we, got,、uh, and then we have Mike, who has been on the podcast before. Yep. So, Mike, also known as Mike Haru Art on the forums.、Uh, I think I've been around on the last podcast we talked about it when、uh, Henrietta was in the fruit cellar. Mm <laughs> hmm. So, about that long. Yeah. It's probably long.、Uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So,、uh, just so everyone figures out,、uh, I, I assume everyone listening knows what we're doing, but basically, we're going to give our top 10 samurai films.、Uh, depending on how long it takes, we might go from number 10 to number 5 and then split it into two episodes and then do、uh, number 5 to number 1 in a second episode, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So, I guess the plan is we'll basically just go a round table and、uh, we'll, we'll each give our number 10 and then our number 9 and so on and so forth. And I'm expecting crossover. I mean, you know, Akira Kurosawa is a director after all, so I, I have to、uh, assume there's going to be some crossover. Yeah, I got some obscure ones here, so maybe not. 
That'd be good. I, I didn't go quite so obscure. I kind of went uh, pop culture just because it was easier for me since uh, these are the ones that I've, I've seen more recently. <laughs> but uh, we'll see how it goes. So now that we're, uh, we've got the uh, ground rules established here, who would like to go first for uh, number 10? Okay, I'll take it. All right. Okay, so this one is a very much a samurai film noir. It's um, directed by Masaki Kobayashi, but it's not any of the films you'll be thinking of. It's one of the rarer ones. It stars Tatsuya Nakabutai and Shintaro Katsu. And the basic plot is a group of really desperate outlaws. They're all thieves and murderers that live on this boathouse slash bar in the middle of some river just outside Edo. And there's a bunch of government inspectors that are trying to find a way to basically bust them and kill them. This film is very talky for about the first 90 minutes. It builds and builds and builds. And then about halfway through, this kid stumbles in all bleeding. And he's been roughed up. Turns out his girlfriend was like basically um, taken by money lenders. And he tried to get her back and got his ass kicked. <laughs> At first, they're hostile to them because nobody's allowed in this bar. And so gradually, they all become sympathetic with him and decide that they're going to you know, go and rescue the girl. And it ends with this wonderful climactic battle in the marshes. I mean, when the Edo period police come, all you see are these lanterns coming through the mist, like hundreds of illuminated lanterns. And Nakadai does one of his best death scenes I've ever seen. And it's really, you know, wonderful film. It's kind of hard to find, but, but, you know, there are copies out there. So the actual Japanese title is Inochi Bonifuro. The American title, when it had a brief theatrical release, was In of Evil. But I prefer the alternate title, which is We Give Our Lives for Nothing. Hmm. For some reason, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Directed in 1971. It's like a samurai Yakuza crossover. Kobayashi, did he uh, did he did he direct uh, the original Harakiri? Yes, he did. Okay, because when you said uh, Kobayashi and uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, that's where my mind went immediately. Yeah, when we always think of like Kwaidan Harakiri or a Samurai Rebellion, and this is the you know his, his fourth Jiraigeki production, and I think it's his best because he really builds up the tension and the atmosphere in this. When it jumps off, it's so effective. I mean, it's almost like a work of art comes to life when you see those lanterns coming across the river through the mist at the end. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine the uh, I can imagine the scene. Yeah, I mean, the climatic battle is pretty awesome, and it kind of ends with like um, the boy and girl do survive, and kind of in magnificent seven or seven samurai status, they visit the graves of all those who died to save them and pay homage. So, Mike, have you heard of this movie? I heard of the title, and of course, um, the director, he actually makes his way into my list uh, later on. Um, I did not actually get to see that one. But I think Kobayashi, as a director, has this sort of knack of doing anti-samurai films, the way we think of it. The the sort of anti-Bushido honor system that his uh his samurai especially the government are kind of these uh lecherous uh corrupt officials things like that and so it, it i don't know if it carries out in that particular film 
Oh, it does. Except these are all like heroic losers. Mm, that's the, uh, the the Japanese love affair with the uh, the lovable loser. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially Katsu, who plays like this drunk who walks in, and at first they beat him up and throw him out, and he comes right back in. <laughs> Probably true to life in his form, too. Yeah, he seems to be good at playing the kind of the lovable loser. He he actually shows up on my list at some point. Yeah, I've got a few of his, and Nozata Ichi, which is good. I mean, I kind of stayed away from some of the more expected ones like Zata Ichi and Nimuri. But this is a wonderful film. I highly advise everyone to seek it out and give it a shot, because I think it's the best of his four Jidageki films by a long shot. Mm, all right, that's definitely going on my list of 2C. I've never heard of it. I'll have to look it up. I'm going to have to, yeah, watch that one. Okay, yeah, let's move on to the next, to somebody else. Okay, how about you, Mike? Well, my pick is a little bit more mainstream than that. It's one of the old 60s. Uh, I would say it was more Chambara than Jidageki, but it's a classic Kihachi Akamoto film. And you can definitely get it on Criterion, but uh, it's about a samurai who kills his opponent in a duel and is haunted basically afterwards and uh, I guess hunted down by the brother of uh, his opponent and of course it ends in a massive uh, sword battle of course I'm talking about Sword of Doom starring uh, Tatsuya Nakare yeah that's an old time classic and uh, the ending it probably made me more mad than the smash cut in the Sopranos <laughs> hey no spoilers <laughs> No spoilers, but there's a, a smash cut, so it, it kind of leaves it uh, really open-ended after, you know, this emotional, uh, I would say, sword battle that goes on for well over double digits in minutes. Yeah, yeah, Okamoto originally wanted to make two films, but it didn't do well in Japan, so they took away the budget for the second film. That's why it ends like that. Oh, yeah. And I, I thought it kind of falls under uh, looking at my list again, and especially I, I do have a Kobayashi film that it's sort of these anti-samurai films. I'm sort of gravitating to a lot of these uh, films that ran from the 60s to now that seem to be the anti-bullshido, as we like to call it in the forums. And so I, I think sort of Doom is a flawed film but it's a really good one i think it has some emotional acting in a way and just the fact that nakadai could just be this cold killer and really do that uh, well like he's just stone through the whole movie uh, even after murdering you know a buddhist priest yeah there's actually an earlier version with rise out ichikawa that's a trip of three films, um, Sword Devil, I believe the title is, or Daibosatsu Toge, which is the original one. But um, Rizal plays him more of a cold-blooded killer, without, whereas Nakadai goes into the madness part. Yeah, this quiet madness, this quiet insanity, almost. He was based on a real, actual Tokugawa samurai that ended up going to China and becoming a Catholic priest. Hmm, that's an odd trip. Yeah, I mean, it's actually, uh, he was the inspiration for, you know, the storyline. And the actual book was, like, never finished. It was like Japan's Gone with the Wind. Well, I thought that was the um, Musashi trilogy, but... 
<laughs> yeah, the very first version of it was in 1936 by Inagaki. And it had Chezo Kataoka. Sorry, he was in the 50s remake. There's been, to my knowledge, there's been like four different versions of it. And Okamoto got the short end of the stick by having his budget yanked away from him, so he was unable to continue with his plans for the second film in the series. Oh, is there any uh, working script or any working notes on it? Uh, there is actually a book in English, and um, it's been out of print. The last copy was in 1923. I once actually got a copy through the interlibrary loan. And basically, it's a huge Buddhist novel. You know, um, in the second film, the lead character, Rinosuke, Rinosuke rather, um, gets blinded in an explosion. And he ends up becoming a blind swordsman. And of course, he kills the girl, everyone that's pursuing him. And he finally ends up being washed away in this like big you know, flood in the middle of a storm. He's like clinging to the roof of the thatched cottage as it floats down the river, shouting and yelling into the distance. And that's the last we see of him. That's after he slaughtered half the cast. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, the Nakadai version is the most famous, easily. Only one's ever been released in this country, and the first version in 1936 is just impossible to find. It was one of those films that destroyed by General MacArthur. Oh. I believe it's like a 10-minute clip on YouTube. Wow. All right. Anything else to say on this subject? No, I think we're ready for year number 10. Okay. All right. My number 10. So my number 10 is from uh, 2003, and it's probably not an obvious pick, and uh, I, I guess it's also probably what you wouldn't really call a traditional samurai film. It uh, takes place basically in, in one room and essentially consists of two main actors and two supporting actors, and uh, the director, Ryuhei Kitamura and Yukihiko Tsutsumi, were basically challenged to make a, a film with two actors in one location, and uh, Tsutsumi, for his movie, came up with two LDK, which was... Uh, Pretty good. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's basically about two female roommates who basically just beat the shit out of each other for an hour and a half. But uh, Kitamura's version, uh, or Kitamura's film, is uh, Aragami. And uh, I don't know, I liked it. I, th I thought it was uh, definitely an interesting movie. Basically, the, the, the basic plot idea is that uh, two wounded samurai show up at a temple somewhere in the mountains of Japan. And uh, kind of, it's not very clear what happens, but one of them survives the night, the other one doesn't, and he meets his host. And uh, it's, I would say, a good solid half of the movie is just dialogue. And then there's a bit of a reveal, and then there's a big fight scene at the end. And it's not really clear when this takes place, but it has to take place sometime after 1645, just because of some information that gets dropped in the reveal, which I won't reveal because that would be a bit of a spoiler. But uh, suffice it to say, it takes place after 1645, not really clear when. And in fact, not really clear what battle these samurai would have come from after 1645 but yeah you know it's a movie so who who cares but uh yeah so aragami it's uh not a, not a classic or traditional samurai film but uh it is a samurai film nonetheless and although I, I guess you could probably call it more of a i don't know a supernatural mystery maybe does that does that sound reasonable yeah it does actually i like this film a lot yeah, I like the, I like the dialogue i like the setup before the end the end is a bit odd but uh <laughs> i do i do like the movie and, uh, yeah, just barely squeaked by it at number 10. So I actually like Kitamura, but he seems to have, like, fallen off the map whilst I heard he was doing video games. 
Well, they brought him over to the US to do like Godzilla film. Or he did a he did a Godzilla film that bombed and crashed and burned, and that pretty much killed his career. Yeah, because I I didn't uh, I didn't take a note of the other films that he's done, but uh, I if I'm if I'm not mistaken, he seems to have a very like MTV music video style to the way he films. Oh, totally. I mean, Azumi is his most famous. Oh, right, right. Yeah. I don't believe he did the sequel, which was the better of the two. And that's like Joe Odagiri as like the transsexual swordsman. That was Aya Ueto's um, sidekick. Right, right, right. That's right. I do remember that, yeah. You know, the, the two main actors, you know, I, let me search my memory here. I know Masaya Kato was one of them. He's he's great in the uh, in a ver- in a variety of Yakuza films. And uh, so I, I like him. And then there's the uh, the samurai in the film, played by was it Osawa? I think, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Uh, t- oh yeah, Takao Osawa, who I, I recognize him from. I feel like I recognize him from so many things, but I just couldn't figure out what movie that I've seen him in. But I feel like he's been in a lot of stuff. He might be just be sort of a a supporting actor in a lot of things. Yeah, I think he's one of those B cinema actors. Yeah, that probably is. I mean, he's he's very familiar, but I couldn't I couldn't pinpoint where I've seen him before. Uh, I think I think m- people might. Well, I don't know. I don't know if this movie actually was released in the U.S., but the movie Sakurada Mongai no Heng, you know, the uh, the the incident at Sakurada Gate from a few years ago. He was, I think, he was the star of that. Yeah, that was a great film, actually. Yeah, I had to watch it a couple times to to kind of get into. When I fir- the first time I saw it, I I was kind of confused as to why the whole focus would be on after the incident. But then after uh, I saw it again, and I was like, okay, it makes more sense. I, I it took me a couple of viewings to sort of get into it. Yeah, Aragami itself was um is horribly out of print now. Really? Yeah, it was, it was only one of those. It's only stayed in print for about three or four years. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I I uh I haven't seen it in a while, but uh, I I feel like it should be available on Netflix. But hey, who knows? Yeah, they come up with some weird stuff. I mean, I found this um really weird Nakadai film called Portrait of Hell on there. I've been looking for. I mean, yeah, Netflix really has to get on it. I've been waiting for them to do Survive Style 5 Plus forever. So, For like 10 years, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm still waiting 10 years later. Yeah, but uh, yeah, anyway, yep, that's my number 10, Aragami. It's uh, not a traditional samurai film, but a samurai film nonetheless, and I, I recommend it. All right, so what, what's who's next? I guess it would be you, Michael. Okay, so my I wanted to pick a Kaiden, but without going for one of the obvious ones like... You know, there's 120 versions of Yotsuya Kaiden, or the other right. one, counting the plates. And there's, of course, um, Kaiden Botan Dotu about the guy who falls in love with a goat, with a dead woman. But I picked uh, one from 1958. And the difference in this one, the ghost is actually a male, which is a surprise. You know, almost like 89.9% of Kaiden films about long-haired you know ghosts female ghosts seeking vengeance yeah i, f- I feel like uh, 99.9 of all ghosts in japan are female <laughs> yeah this one is it's only about an hour long 48 minutes actually and it's basically um a young ronin becomes an apprentice of a famous painter called shigenobu and he falls in love with his wife and of course he you know falls in so he decides to murder the painter rapes the wife then he kills the servant and keeps the wife as his mistress and tries to basically take over the painter's work but the painter and the murdered servant are not having it (laughs) so 
the thing that makes this film stand out is it's got a really creepy, unsettling atmosphere. And they do an amazing use of like shadows on the walls and voices and things like that. And you wonder if the guy is actually losing his mind or if he's actually being haunted. And of course, in the end, you know, he, he dies in, you know, a big protracted sword fight with all these people who come to the rescue and save the wife at the last minute. Even though he's already, you know, had his way wicked way with her, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's just a really effective little ghost story, and once again, it's one of the more obscure Kaidens. But I think it's actually the best, just for its the innovative camera work. For me, is like what puts it above all the rest. What year was that one again? Oh, the garden, 1958. The title is Kaiden Chibusa Inoki which is Ghost of Chibusa Inoki, directed by Goro Kadano. Never even heard of this guy. And starring Asao Matsumoto, Katsuko Wakasugi, and Hiroshi Hayashi. And all of these, from what I've read, all of the actors and director were stage people. That's why they don't really appear in the IMDb or anything else. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I was, was going to say they didn't sound familiar. No, it's, it's really obscure. I just found it on the end of a bootleg of Yotsuya Kaiden with Wakayama about 20 years ago. Someone attacked it, was nice enough to attack it on the end. But I think it's actually you know, a great film in its own right. That one even sounds obscure by Japanese standards. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, at least we got one ghost story in there. And the prince even subtitled. He had a fan stub as dug it up. The original version I saw had no subtitles, but um, recently there's been you know downloads of fan sub downloads floating around. So that's my number nine. All right. Okay, Mike, I guess you're next. Well, I think I went in the uh, opposite way uh, and went pretty mainstream on this one. So this one's a 1989 film, one of Shintaro Katsu's last one. And uh, it, of course, is the last Zato Ichi to be written and starring Shintaro Katsu. And I know you can go through like a hundred episodes and a hundred movies, but I think the reason I pick this one is uh, one, it was his last venture in the character, and everyone assumed no one would ever make another Zatoichi film again. But also, uh, it, it's a nice Yakuza film that sort of crossover we're talking about, where you know Zatoichi tries to pick a side and saves the village and the kids and. As one Rotten Tomato description puts it, is like finds love in the arms of a beautiful courtesan. So I like it for being kind of this sort of grindhouse style film. It takes on like this really westerny kind of almost low budget 70s or 80s grindhouse in a way. And it was extremely accessible as a, a kind of an action vehicle, I think. Would you say it's a lower budget than the other ones, or is it just uh, just the style's different? I think the style's much more different uh, because, you know, at the end you have sort of uh, an English song playing while he's, uh, you know, walking away, and it kind of reminds me, I, I'll, I'll accuse Quentin Tarantino of kind of stealing the idea for the end of uh, Django, where they're just playing music and they're leaving, kind of a, a Western sound. Um, but... Uh, it, it felt for me to be less Chambara, like that traditional Chambara that uh, we saw with Zadoichi in the 60s and 70s. 
and it kind of took on the 80s action movie feel almost i mean at the very end there is of course uh, a massive sword fight and you know even though we have a much older shintaro katsu the character is completely in form in this where he's just taking on an entire village of yakuza by himself and uh using uh, every everything to do it no spoiler alert but there's a gigantic sake barrel that gets used to to good effect And, and so it really just i think took on a different style than what we are accustomed to when we do zadoichi but i liked it it was a classic for me i saw it in 89 when it came out and so it always really stuck with me as one of those chambara films yeah, I love it myself. I think it's one of the best Zazaichi films. I was very close to putting it on my list, actually. Yeah, I, I'm. I, I'm like, I have to get Zadoichi, but I think I'll go with the very last one. Um, of course, this movie was most famous because Shintaro Katsu's son had accidentally killed an actor on set. Yeah, his son plays one of the Yakuza bosses, and, and it was very well known that you know the police had dubbed it an accidental homicide but there was accusations that the two actors were getting into a fight or something if i remember correctly i heard there was a lot of drug usage on the set and a lot of drunkenness of course with katsu they go hand in hand yeah from what i hear that's uh, <laughs> that's probably the case i mean i enjoyed it apparently nobody else <laughs> put it on their list but like I said, I went. Oh, I've been a big fan of it. It was. I was very close to putting it on this list. I'm actually way out of touch when it comes to Zatoichi. I've only seen a, a small handful over the years, so that, that'll be something I'll have to revisit at some point. Yeah, I think the last ones are actually the best. Because mm. I know everyone goes for you know Zatoichi versus Yojimbo and sort of those, but this one uh, I, I think is really good. And because it's the last foray for me, it, it's kind of uh, has meaning. I think. Yeah, he did a couple of parodies of Zaraichi on Katano's TV series after that, but that oh, was about yeah. it. And then, of course, Katano picked it up in the early 2000 version. Yeah, then the Shingo Katori version, too. I skipped that version. <laughs> and that film, Ichi, is actually, she's meant to be his daughter. Hmm. But yeah, I definitely recommend checking that one out. It's really good. Ichi's decent. Mm, uh, that's streaming on Netflix right now. I still haven't seen it. Yeah, I put it as the best of the post-Katsu Zatoichi films. I mean, there's only three of them. Mm. Huh, that's a, that's an endorsement. I, I wasn't sure if it was any good or not, so I've been avoiding it. <laughs> he makes a brief cameo in the film, but he's not named. Mm. But Ricky Takauchi is really over the top in it, too. And I mean, I'm a Takeshi Kitano junkie anyway, so I liked, by default, the remake, well, the Sakashi Kitano version with, uh, was it Tadanabu Asano? Yeah, it's yeah. Asano. Yeah, I just keep remember that guy who keeps running around the house in circles, oh. screaming or singing. Oh, with the uh, Yari, yeah. Oh, right. In the Kitano one. Yeah, that was an odd, an odd thing. I mean, he appears throughout the whole film periodically. Yeah, that's true. Just sort of appear, yeah. Just come, basically, he's the guy that just runs around naked, right? With or, or with the uh, fundoshi and the spear, yeah. With the spear, he's running around screaming about something. Just runs around the house in a circle. <laughs> All right, I guess. Uh, shall we move on? Yep. All right. So my number nine is uh, 
I, I don't know how many people have actually seen this movie. I mean, it's and and I'm not even sure how well known it is. It's uh, from from 1990, so it's not uh, it's not from the golden age of samurai films. And uh, it's apparently a remake, which I, I wasn't aware of at the time, but a, a remake of a 1957 movie of the same name. But uh, the uh, directors are listed as Masahiro Makino and Kazuo Kuroki. But my understanding, from what I've heard, the that Takashi Miike was actually an assistant director, and and uh, for whatever reason, I guess they just kind of put the film in his hands, and he took off with it. And you can see his fingerprints all over it. Yeah, it's a Ronin guy from uh, 1990, and uh, yeah, it's a I, I I love this movie. It's got uh, you know we we're just talking about uh, uh, Katsu Shintaro Katsu, uh, you know as Zatoichi in this one he plays what, I think they call him Bear or something I don't remember exactly but and uh, there's also what is it Toshio Harada who who I I think of him as like the Benicio del Toro of of Japanese films because that's what he looks like in this. <laughs> and uh yeah the uh the you you can really see Mike's influence throughout the whole movie especially the ending there's like the big, the big battle scene at the end and i don't know how I, I feel like this one is kind of flown under the radar i mean it's not it's not obscure or anything but i, I kind of feel like it's one that maybe a lot of people haven't actually seen so i definitely uh Mike actually directed the climax because the director was taken to hospital or some illness. No, oh, okay, maybe that's what was going on. Because I remember hearing that he he was kind of the assistant director, but they kind of put it in his hands. So I guess that makes sense. Yeah, he finished the film off under Katsu's direction. Mm, okay, perfect. No wonder. And uh, yeah, I just I just love this movie. I love the uh, I love the action scenes. I love the uh, the whole thing. It's kind of basically the, I guess the basic plot idea is that the uh, this 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 sort of town of of loser Ronin and prostitutes and and basically just sort of misfits. The prostitutes start getting killed, and the the misfit Ronin kind of get together to try to solve the mystery, and uh, eh, that's that's a basic plot outline. It's not not you know it's <laughs> there's no great depth of plot, but it's a it's a good movie. I liked it. It's the best of the three versions by a long shot. The first one was in nineteen twenty eight, Silent, mm. which I've seen that. I mean, there's lots of pieces missing from it. I've seen the footage that survived. And it doesn't really strike me as that great, but um, and the fifties, nineteen fifties version is just a bit too homey and folksy. Mm. The nineteen ninety one is the one that's really perfect. Yeah, yeah, I loved it, I, especially uh, Shintaro. I thought he was great in that. Yeah, it was one of his great best roles. Yeah. I think it's been forever since I watched that one. I remember, you know, audition coming out, and then we're like, okay, now I got to go back and watch his older stuff. Yeah, I think I found it later on. I think I found it in the early 2000s when I when I finally got around to watching it. And uh yeah, it's a, it's a great great acting, great action. Uh I, I, yeah, a lot of good a lot of good actors in this movie. And uh I guess the the title basically would translate to Ronin Street or Ronin Town. Yeah, something along those lines. And uh yeah, basically it's like an island of misfit toys that uh have to solve a mystery of of murdered prostitutes. <laughs> It's actually a good companion film to the Inagaki one I was talking about earlier. Mm. The two of them have a similar slow burn to the explosive climax. Oh, okay, yeah, make a good uh, make a good double feature. Oh, absolutely. All right, so that's my number nine. So who's up? Okay, I'm up. Number eight, I'm going with Raizou Ichikawa and Kenji Masumi. Of course, those two would be a huge team throughout the sixties. Old school. Yeah. And it's based on a number by, sorry, a book by Renzaburo Shibata, who wrote the Kiyoshiro Nimuri series. 
In this one, Raisal stars with Shigeru Amachi, Mayumi Nagisa, and the Dai pinup girl from the 50s and early 60s, Masayo Banri. And it's called Destiny's Son, or Kiro, which means kill, not to be confused with the Okamoto Nakadai film. Right. And in this one, basically, um, a woman is picked to assassinate the clan chief's mistress because she's spending all the money and the clan's going broke which she does, and she's sentenced to be executed for doing it, but no one wants to kill her, so her husband, you know, agrees to do it. And then he leaves the clan and becomes a monk. The baby, which grows up to be Reizal, becomes a phenomenal swordsman known as Takakuro Shingo. Shingo. And um, he goes on his quest to find out his true identity, and he basically floats between the Tokugawa side and the Choshu and Mito rebels until finally he's assigned as a bodyguard to a shogunate instructor, uh, sorry, a shogunate counselor, and fails to protect him, and so he ends up killing himself. But it's a, the reason I like the film is it's got some, considering Masumi never had really had any money, I mean, this guy had, like, the, probably the budget of Kurosawa's lunch on one film. <laughs> he comes up with these, like, beautiful, like, shots, you know, and sunsets. I mean, some stunning camera work. And he always had this, like, the poetic imagery we associate with a lot of samurai films of the 60s. And once again, this is, a, you know, about one of these rebel samurai that um, is betrayed by the code of Bushido and tries to make it right only this time around. I mean, I had to give away the ending, kind of, but, you know, he basically can't do it, so he ends up topping himself. But it's a beautiful film. It um, came out in 1962, and it actually shows a nicer rise out than, you know, we're used to seeing. He's like this um, well-meaning guy, but everywhere he goes, people die. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, you know, it's a gorgeous film. So that's my number eight. Uh, that's another obscure one I'm going to have to watch. Yeah, it's really worth seeking out. All right. Okay, Mike, you're up. Uh, I guess the segue from uh, Chris's. So I'll read the description and see if anyone can guess this one. So it's a 2011 uh, film, an action film set at the end of Japan's feudal era in which a group of unemployed samurai are enlisted to bring down a sadistic lord and prevent him from ascending the throne and plunging the country into a war-torn future. Well, that's an obvious one. <laughs> I have to assume it's 13 assassins. Yeah, I had to throw that one in. I think it's one of the superior ones of uh, Miyake's recent stuff. I mean, what's to say about it? I think it's beautifully shot, first of all well acted the action scene at the end is just phenomenal probably one of the best choreographed action scenes i've ever seen in a chambara film i think it really falls in the place with my oh the evil samurai magistrate sort of uh theme and you know you have the plucky heroes this just mishmash of people so it's kind of like the japanese uh we'll say the japanese rogue one that's an interesting way to put it. So I thought it was a phenomenal film. And I always say when Mieke does crazy, he does crazy. But when he does, you know, great, he can do great cinema. And we saw that. You know, I know, what was it, The Immortal? Sword of the Immortals just came out. 
I wasn't a huge fan of that one as a film. And then, uh, God, what was the one before it? Oh, Harakiri, the remake. That one was pretty good. The other one where the guy was going through time just... Sl- oh, Izo. Izo was terrible. Yeah. Unless one of you guys has it on your list, in which case I apologize, but I thought it was <laughs> terrible. <laughs> no, I definitely don't have Izo in there, but yeah, I think Mirke, when he does crazy, he does crazy, but when he does really good stuff, it's really good. Um, so the remake of Harakiri, I liked it, but 13 Assassins, I think, holds a place uh, for me as really good Chambada. Yeah, and uh, you the, and we finally have some overlap because 13 Assassins was my number six. Oh, finally, the first overlap. So, but, you know, just to, to on, on top of what you said, yeah, I the the one the one thing about that film that I found was that uh, I saw it twice in the theater when it first came out, and I was completely blown away. But then on later viewings, I I kind of cooled on it a bit. So I feel like it gives a good first impression, but it doesn't necessarily hold up with multiple viewings. Although I still obviously it's number six on my list, so I thought it was really good. But yeah, I just I felt like it was a huge impact when I first saw it, but then later on viewing it again later on, it didn't quite have the same impact as it did. But I, I still thought it's a, I still thought it was a, a great movie. And then of course the uh, like you said the forty five minutes of like nonstop combat at the end was was probably the most impressively filmed you know Japanese combat scene I guess you could say that I that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean the way it was cut it was very seamless and I mean just I don't know how you felt but that scene when they're on the gate with the uh, the paper saying just kill them all. Oh right right or annihilate them and so you know you knew from that start to finish that it was just going to be uh a, an amazing scene i think uh, it was essentially non-stop it was cut very seamlessly so it comes out as almost one uncut shot even though there are multiple cuts it just moves seamlessly good point it's not uh it's not smash cut in any way it's it just flows and you, you, you know, it, it, that kind of thing has been done before. Like I said, uh, Rogue One, uh, Magnificent Seven, you know, the Dirty Dozen, Seven Samurai, where, you know, eventually they're going to get overwhelmed and picked off. It's been done to death, but I, I think it was... Mieke was able to do it in, in such a way that it was new and, uh, I think, exciting. And, again, it was shot beautifully. The, the, the actors themselves were really good. I think my one... Beef, I understand where he's coming with it, but was it the yokai character? The right, sort of right. one that they modeled after uh, Seven Samurai? Was that the goofy guy that wanted to have sex with everyone in the village? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the guy with the, yeah, the guy with the sling, who wasn't even yeah. Samurai. Yeah. He was supposed to uh, be the Tishiro Mifone-like character. Right. And I have to say, too, that uh, I saw the uncut Japanese version, and the edited American version is actually better. Um, people whined and complained, I, I noticed on, on reviews, about uh, how there were scenes cut from the American version, but it actually made it a better film. Uh, the scenes that were cut, uh, I remember one of them was just basically showing how crazy the... Uh, what was the actor? The Smap guy. I forget his name. Oh, um, God... Oh, I know Garo. Was it Garo Kibuki? Yeah, he uh, in in the uh, the Japanese version. There's a, a uh, one or two scenes that make him look like just literally mentally ill, 
and those were those were removed for the American version, and I thought it actually made it a lot better because it makes him look more evil than just mentally ill. <laughs> and there were a couple other scenes that were cut as well that that just made it a tighter movie. So, and and I'll get to it in one of my picks, but a lot of the time Japanese films overdo things. They overdo the melodrama. They over overdo things, and they could really use some good editing. And I actually thought the edited version of 13 assassins was actually better overall than the japanese version the unedited ver unedited version yeah all the cut scenes were included in the extras on the dvd blu-ray anyway oh that's right but yeah i mean i don't know if you really looked through them but uh yeah i really felt like the the edited american version actually did a better a better job of of keeping a tight story ak himself actually edited it oh he did oh okay well I, then even better yeah the studio told him it was too long and to take some stuff out, so he basically edited it to perfection. Mm. Yeah, it was a def definitely did a good job of it because, like I said, there's some sometimes these Japanese movies just just drag, <laughs> or or add like information, add stuff you just don't need that just doesn't need to be there. Yeah, a bit of an interesting backstory to this. To prepare for this film, Mikkei actually starred in the first fifteen episodes of the Tiger drama Tenchijin. Really? Yeah, he was um, one of the counselors in um, when they had the, the first fifteen episodes are um, starting with Kagakatsu tries to like take over the U.S. again as a civil war, hmm. and um, Mike was one of the most vociferous opponents. Hmm. That's uh, still on my two two C list. I still haven't seen it. Yeah, I mean that's the best part of it was that first fifteen episodes. But you'll recognize him as soon as you see him. I mean, he plays a great bad guy. Mm. But, you know, he'd never really done a chamber except for he did this one project for Kumamoto Castle called Kumamoto Stories, of which the last episode was about the siege of the castle by Sasa Narimasa and how the women ended up dressing as men mm. at the end. And it was actually pretty good. It was one of his, his first venture into Jedi Geki since Ronin Guy. So he decided to, like, brush up and he actually went to NHK and asked him if he could be an actor on Tenjijin. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, and I also think it's a lot. This is a rare occasion where the remake is a lot better than the original. Yeah, I saw the uh, I saw the original, and uh, yeah, I, I definitely the the re well, I mean, you know, of course, it also has the benefit of modern technology and everything else, but right. Yeah, I mean, the original had Chazo Kataoka and every Toei studio actor you could think of you know, conscripted to be uh, in it it was good it was a great film but this is a class apart totally so speaking of drawn out ridiculous melodrama uh, we come to my number eight <laughs> a film from 2002 it's probably the most melodramatic and drawn out of the films on my list and uh, the tale of a poor country bumpkin samurai who joins up with the shinsengumi I i'm sure you guys know this film I'm sure you know it well, but it's uh, Mibugishiden. I guess the direct translation of Mibugishiden would be the uh, legend of the Mibugishi or when the last sword is drawn. I mean, they, they probably should have called it when the last sword is drawn out way too long because it, it's a good movie, but my God, that ending scene is the most ridiculously overwrought and, and long melodramatic scene I've ever seen. I've ever witnessed i really feel like they needed a desperately needed an editor in there to to hack some of that up because my god it was ridiculous 
it's even worse than the TV version with Ken Watanabe. That speech goes on for about 45 minutes. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, I know I don't want to spoil the film for anyone who hasn't seen it, although I feel like anyone who likes samurai films has probably seen it. But the ending of When the Last Sword is Drawn is is ridiculously drawn out and melodramatic. And it's like when just when you think it's over, it continues. I mean, I feel like you could make a comedy sketch about it, but... I liked it. I saw it uh, when I was in when I was in Japan in two thousand two. I, I saw it the, for, for the first time, and uh, I, God, the the actor's name is not coming to me. Who's the star of that movie? That's right, Nakai Kichi and uh, Koichi Sato. That's right. Uh, yeah, and uh, Nakai basically plays a, a, a goofy country bumpkin samurai who, you know, it turns out he's a lot more honorable and and so and so than he he lets on at first. But yeah, I thought it was really good. It was a good use of. It was like a good a good modern samurai film as far as like the filming and everything goes. I thought it was really well done and a really interesting story. Although I, I did find, if I remember correctly, occasionally it would like kind of bounce back and forth in time. And I, I think I found that kind of confusing, but uh, I mean, you know, after a couple of viewings, it all made sense, but you know, that can be a little bit confusing when they kind of like go back in time and they, they show him in his year or, you know, whatever, however long prior, and then it goes back to the future and back and forth. Little, little confusing with that, but I thought it was a good film. Definitely not worth, uh, or definitely, you definitely don't want to miss it, especially if you're a fan of the Shin Sengumi, because I think it's the uh, Ikedaya incident. Yeah, that, that was great. I, I always, uh, I always love seeing that uh, portrayal because it's pretty, pretty epic. Even though it's more like you know, well-trained swordsmen just killing kind of untrained rebels, <laughs> but uh, so a little less romantic than they'd have you believe. But I, I do, I do like seeing that on film. I always think that's pretty cool. I think it's actually the best Shinsengumi film, period, because, I mean, you know, they seem to get the Shinsengumi right in TV dramas, but they can't do it in films. They used to get all these guys in their 60s playing the Shinsengumi. That's ridiculous. The guys are in their 20s and the actors are in their 60s. <laughs> right. Yeah, and they always, like, you know, try and put them as, like, this um, noble 47 Ronin types in film. At least in the TV stuff, you get behind the scenes and see, you know, to both good and bad of them. And as we all know, they have a propensity to kill. Yes, very <laughs> much so. Speaking of which, uh, Romulus's next book's going to be on the Shinsengumi, but it looks like it's going to be a really big epic. Really? I, I, I noticed that on Twitter, and I was wondering if he was just going to, just republishing his original Shinsengumi book. I wasn't really clear what he was doing. No, yeah, he's doing, um, this is going to be like an, a complete guide to the Shinsengumi, everything you ever wanted to know about. Well, I'll read it. <laughs> I... Including where their sword style originates from, everything. Cool, I'll, I'll definitely read it. I, I, uh, we'll see. I made peace with that book, just for a depiction of Kid Carter. <laughs> but um, When the Last Sword is Drawn, I think it's like one of the best depictions of Shinsengumi on film. Yeah, and that's saying a lot because it's been, I mean, there's been a ton of movies. Oh, yeah. They, I think the first one was actually in 1915. Uh, yeah. Kind of like the, uh, the, the 47 Ronin story. There's a hundred different versions, but very few of them are actually all that good. Yeah. Yeah, most of them aren't even worth sitting through. Yeah. You know, and th that film is just amazing. There's one thing I want to bring up about the television version, which is even though the film is much better, and it has the television version has some awful casting like Naoto Takanaka as Sato. Oh my god. He's like almost seventy, isn't he? Yeah. I forget the guy who plays Kondo, but God is he that's such really terrible casting and Ken Watanabe plays um Yoshimura. Oh jeez. I mean I I love Takenaka Naoto. He's he's uh, he's my favorite. But uh I, I can't 
countenance him as uh... <laughs> there's a whole bit missing from the film though where um, Yoshimura's son goes to Hakodate and joins up with Hijikata for the final stand because he's trying to redeem what his father did at Toba Fushimi oh boy but you know, but also that scene in the dentist's office that opens the film that's not in the, the book or the TV film oh really they just made that up they made that up, yeah. yeah. I think the film is super, much superior to the TV drama. Yeah, I did like I did like how they did that in the film. They have the the you know the the the, the guy going to the doctor or a dentist, whatever it was, and you know they kind of kind of telling the story and all that. But I mean, my God, it was just lay off the melodrama a little bit, please. Yeah, I remember it being some of the I think one of the three stronger two thousand films, which I have another one later on my list but I, I remember it as one of the stronger ones to come out in the early uh 2000s yeah there was uh there were other movies that i just didn't like which we may or may not get to but uh um yeah i thought i thought it was a solid a solid entry in the samurai film but I, I thought it was just all, all around great i mean there's no i mean aside from the, the stupendously ridiculous melodrama there was really no i had no issues with it at all i thought it was great Shall we move on to number seven? Okay, I'm up for number seven. Right, this one is also stars Rise Out Ichikawa and Masayo Bannery and what's his name? Um, Shige. Oh, God, I lost his. Well, whatever. It's the same cast as Destiny's Son, pretty much. But this is a completely twisted little film. If Edgar Allan Poe wrote a Jedageki, this would be it. Huh. <laughs> Is and basically Rezal plays like a Kagamusha. He's the third double hmm. of this minor little despotic warlord that lives in the, you know, occupies this mountain fife. And Rezal's like a plays he plays two roles as the warlord and this peasant who's happily plowing the fields and is conscripted to be the Lord's third double. You know, the Lord is like he reminds me a lot of um Date Masamune, including with a helmet. And of course, you know, Rezar is happy because he's getting paid really well. Uh, but when the Lord loses an eye, all the doubles have to lose their eye too. <laughs> Rezar decides, yeah, this isn't really what I signed up for. And the same night they have their eye taken out, their little castle is attacked by a neighboring clan. And Rezar and the Lord go on the run. And the Lord instructs Rezar to like cut his arm off of course I say the Lord instructs Rizal he actually plays a guy called um, Kiyonosuke Kiyonosuke as Rizal's playing both roles that would make more sense so basically Kiyonosuke cuts off his Lord's arm then he gets struck with this idea wait a minute when we get to safety he's going to cut off my arm <laughs> I'm not having that so he kills him <laughs> and decides to take his place but one by one, he gets busted by all these people who um, figure out he's the double and not the real lord. And he starts offing all the people, you know, one by one. But every time he thinks he's covered his tracks, there's no one left alive who can bust him. Another one pops up that knows who he really is. And in the end, he... Um, this is what the film would have been a lot higher on my list if it wasn't for the ending. Well, I don't want to be a spoiler, but I have to. He kind of goes mad and is ended up ruled by his own vassals and they keep him locked up and he's like this gibbering idiot. 
Yeah, the battle scenes are really epic in this too. I mean, it's total like complete Sengoku warfare. And the director was, um, I've never even heard of this guy. And this is like, once again, he must be a stage director because this is the only film I think he made. And it was, you know, one of Dai's production. Um, it's actually subtitled in English too. And it's easy to find, you know, you can find downloads of it. You can find um, gray market copies. And it's well worth seeing anybody who you know, really enjoys a good Sengoku dust-up type film, complete with warfare and um, a grim plot. The black and white gives it almost a Kaiden feel to it. There's lots of use of mists and shadows. And at the, at the end, the guy ends up like a complete, like, gibbering lunatic, which is kind of funny. He decides, you know, initially when he kills it, he's going to be a good lord and he's going to make... He's going to chain, make all these changes. And, of course, nothing works out, and they just end, end up ruling in his name while keeping him locked in a room, talking to himself. <laughs> it's called Third Shadow, Japanese title, Dyson no Kagemushu. Hmm. Okay, that's number seven for me. All right. Um, I, I guess it was already brought up, but this is a older... Masaki Kobayashi film from 67 and of course it, it's a, probably a very popular one with Toshiro Mifune set in the 18th century and a father gets involved with a dispute between his son his uh, daughter-in-law and the local lord and it ends on a low note with uh, a sword fight the father killing uh, the magistrates people and then trying to uh, get to, uh, I would say, the city to tell his side of the story. But this one's uh, Samurai Rebellion, of course. I, I find it, you know, uh, as we all know, Masaki Kobayashi did Harakiri. I find this one to be a better version, even though the two had similar themes and sort of similar stories. I would say Harakiri really set up for Samurai Rebellion. I found it to be the stronger of the two because uh, the the acting is well done I think the action scenes are really good there's that famous scene out of the movie where uh, Toshiro Mifune is prepping his house in order to kill the magistrates and so he's ripping out the tatami so that he doesn't slip on blood I don't know if that's on anyone's list but I guess I had to throw a Kobayashi film in there not on my list, just because I haven't seen that movie in, in, I'm not even sure how long. It's probably been close to 30 years, maybe? Yeah, 67 it came out. Yeah, I haven't seen it in probably 20 or 30 years. So didn't didn't uh, didn't make my list simply because I just couldn't remember it. <laughs> yeah, I think it resonated with me because, I, again, I like that Kobayashi's take on sort of the anti, uh, his anti-imperial stance in a way. Because I... From what I've read about him, his his war career and his post-war career really set him up to kind of be on the anti-Bolshido train. And so he tends to have these magistrates who are just not nice people. And again, it, it's similar in, in plot to Harakiri, but I think I had some issues with Harakiri, believe it or not. 
Yeah, I like the film a lot too. Actually, I agree. It's a better film than Harakiri too. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a couple of Toshiro Mifun films in here, and so I was trying to go for a more uh, a non Kurosawa film, something a little, I think, lesser known. For me, it was really good. I thought um, the Chambara action, even as a Jidageki though, but the sword fighting scenes were really well choreographed and. Mifune is always on his game as an actor and of course you have to have the duel between uh, two samurai friends yeah it's a really excellent film actually I mean I saw the remake with Ken Masadera and Masakazu Tamura it was a TV remake and it was nowhere near as good as that film but I, I recommend Chris watches it again yeah, I'll have to. It's been, like I said, it's probably been, I don't even know, somewhere, I think I might have seen it in high school, actually. It's probably been close to 20, 25 years since I've seen it. Yeah, it's, it's one of those ones I saw maybe 15 years ago, and I still remember it. I had to watch the uh, trailers just to get back into it. Yeah, it's one of the first ones I saw as well, actually. All right, is that, uh, is that it for number seven? Yes, over to you, Chris. All right. So my number seven, uh, actually another remake by Takashi Miike. And uh, it's uh, superior in some ways, inferior in many more ways to the original, but uh, I'm talking about 2011's Harakiri. I, I thought it looked, I mean, it looked amazing. It looked beautiful. The filming, the cinematography was amazing on this film. And uh, so I, I really liked that. I liked the, you know, the costumes, the cinematography. Inferior to the original in a lot of ways. I felt like Ichikawa Ebizo was a little too... He, he looked too young to be the, this old <laughs> this old ronin with a full-grown daughter. And it, it kind of revealed the mystery a little bit too quickly for my taste. It didn't do as good of a job kind of setting the stage as the original did. But pretty much follows the original story or, or you know, the original film of uh, this, this mysterious old ronin showing up at the E-Clan residence in, in Edo, I assume to uh, ask for permission to commit seppuku and you kind of it kind of builds on the mystery of why is this guy there what's going on and then uh, and then there's the big reveal at the end and I actually prefer the ending of this one to the original I I, th- I, I I really liked the way they did it rather than the way it was done in the original I mean it made more it made more sense to me in a way I guess uh, and from what I understand the Takashi Miike remake was actually more closer followed the book than the than the uh, original film um yeah because I, I really liked i, I don't want to give away the ending but the way they did the ending in this one i actually thought was better than the the way they did the ending in the original the original is by far a better film but there were aspects of this film that i actually liked better yeah if you could mix the two together and somehow yeah i mean the one thing about the original that kind of i still don't like is his sort of secret technique at the end where he's doing this this kind of cross-armed thing and then it was almost like the full moon cut from sleepy eyes of death yeah or like every um lone wolf and cub film ever right one big difference is that the climatic you know near the ending he uses a bamboo sword in the Mike film and a real sword in the original exactly and that's that difference i thought was actually made more sense to me and i actually liked that better in the new one than than using an actual blade in the original i'm sure there's reasons for it that are justified in the original i don't know what they are but i i, I assume that they had a reason for doing that but 
There were there were little differences between the old one and the new one. I actually had a podcast episode a while back about the differences between the original and the new one. And uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, but there were a few little key differences that you could kind of see the differences, like the societal differences between when the original was filmed and the modern version. Like they changed little things so that it would make more sense to a modern audience or something. Yeah, Kobayashi was another one of the great, you know, leftist directors. So he basically, he took up the original story and went, you know, and he, in a few parts, he did his own thing, whereas Miki stuck to the book page for page. Oh, okay. I guess that would make sense then as to why it was, what, what these little differences were. I was, I was suspecting that it had something to do with presenting it to a modern audience rather than just uh, sticking to the uh, original book. Yeah, it seems um, Kobayashi has more, I think, politics in his directing whereas Miyake is more art and sticking to the source material. What I liked about the Kobayashi film was especially the scene where he, uh, the lead was destroying the ancestral armor. Right. And just kind of like tipping it over and destroying it and uh, as sort of a mockery of the clan. And it really hit home, I think, in terms of that, especially for uh, an audience in the 60s. Right, just recently after World War Two, yeah. Yeah, Mike stated the reason he made it actually was young people won't watch black and white films anymore. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to make a color film. He thinks it's such a great story. He wanted to do it again, only he was going to do it in color so young people would watch it. Huh, that's an interesting concept. I'd, I'd, I, well, I mean, hey, I'd, I'd watch his version of like Seven Samurai if he ever did one. Yeah. yeah he oh, could absolutely. make a whole career of just redoing Jidageki. Let, yeah, just let him remake like all the classics. <laughs> <laughs> He'd do a great job on Throne of Blood. Yeah. All right, I guess, I guess that's uh, that's it for my number seven. Like I said, uh, there there are certain aspects of it that I thought were done better than the original, but overall, the original is a far better film. I guess that's that's my point there. And I think my um, Samurai Rebellion is a compromise between the two. Yeah, they both have very similar themes. All right, Michael, I guess you're up. Number six? Mine's also a remake. It's a 1969 remake of a 1959 film. And the original had Out Ichikawa and Shintaro Katsu. In fact, the original made Shintaro Katsu a star. But the remake, they bought him. It was going to be with um, Out Ichikawa, but of course he was dying of cancer and died shortly before shooting commenced, so Dai had to go to Toei and borrow Hiroki Matsukata to fulfill all Raisal's films that he had left projects. This one's titled Broken Swords, and it's a remake of um, Samurai Vendetta. The reason I prefer this version is Matsukata is a much better swordsman than Raisal ever was. I mean, Raisal had no training in swordplay. He was a kabuki background, whereas Hiroki Matsukasa was the son of Junoshiro Kano, and he'd been brought up in dojos and been, you know, training since he was like three years old. So there's some phenomenal fight scenes in this, and basically this is the nicer version of Tange Taizen, or Tange Seizen. Originally, the original Tange Seizen character was created in the 1920s, as like a serialized comic strip. And they decided in the run-up to World War II that he was too immoral. 
So they rewrote the whole character and came up with Tange Tenzin instead. And of course, you know, in this version, he's a he falls in love with this girl. Lord Kira is going to arrange the marriage, and some um, ex-retainers spot his wife and they kidnap her and rape her. So he has to divorce her, and her brother is so annoyed at him divorcing her, he cuts his iron arm off, <laughs> and he becomes famous as a one-armed swordsman. <laughs> but he has this great friendship with Horib Yasabe from the Forty-Seven. And in the end, it comes to like he has to go and do, you know, defend his wife's honor against the rapists and all their associates. But it's a really spectacular film. You know, it's one of it's one of the reasons we all love samurai films is the poetry, the epic fighting, everything, falling cherry blossoms, the whole ten yards, and this is full of it. It's directed by um, Kazuo Ikehiro too who was one of the great Dai directors and did some of the more adventurous Namuri films. Hmm. Sounds like another interesting one. I haven't uh, heard of that one either. Okay, Mike, I guess you're up. I guess I'll follow up with the plucky losers, uh, plucky samurai losers. So we alluded to this one. This is a Kihachi Akamoto film starring Etsushi Takahashi and Tatsuya Nakadai. And of course, this is uh, the other Kiru. So, also known as Kill in America. I remember liking this one because I saw it, oh god, back in the day IFC did Samurai Saturday. And so I was able to catch it on this. I think I still have a VHS recording of it. But of course it's two would-be, uh, or as I like to call it, half-assed samurai. Um, one I believe was a farmer, the other was actually a ronin. And they find themselves on opposite ends of uh, Yakuza gangs. And one, uh, the samurai's mission, I believe, is to kill the messenger. And in between, you have these stories. The samurai is, or the ronin is sick of being a bouquet. And the farmer wants to be a samurai. And you have all these uh, intertwining kind of plot points and a lot of these scenes. And I kind of liked it because it was atypical of a lot of the samurai films I saw at the time. So it really stuck with me. It had, uh, it's a really good... I think Jidaigeki film, and it has a lot of that Yakuza crossover. And I felt it was really well acted. And I like Akamoto as a director. Personally, he shoots really good stuff. And for me, it was less mainstream at the time. Not, uh, you know, everybody was watching things like Kurosawa films. And, you know, I think Lost Samurai had came out at the time. And so for me, it was more obscure to watch. So I really did enjoy the Kido film. Mm. Yeah, that's another one that I haven't seen in so long that it didn't make my list simply because I couldn't remember it. It's been been uh, a couple decades probably since I've seen it. I, I do remember it being yeah, it's good. Been a while it's, for that's me. about <laughs> that's about all I remember. Yeah, it was the first of Okamoto's Bakamatsu trilogy. The other two being Red Lion, and the third one being Battle Cry in 1975. And Battle Cry was set in the Boshin War, which reminds me a bit of the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but how they track across the American Civil War. Here they track across like Aizu and all the northern areas of Japan, like two complete Yakuza bums, <laughs> until they bump into um, Nakadai as Hijikata. But this is the best, still the best of his three Bakamatsu films, easily. Yeah, and it came out, I think, right around the same time as um, Three Outlaw Samurai and. Was it Go- Gozo the Spearman? 
Yeah, Gondola Spearman, and um, yeah, came out in '68, I believe. Okamoto actually sat down, said he sat down and watched all these political spaghetti westerns, like Bullet for the General, before he did this. Yeah, and you can kind of see it translate well into it, and I kind of have a special place in my heart for western-style stuff anyway, so, of course, um, it's kind of circular that Sanjiro, uh, well, Yojimbo and Sanjiro would... Uh, influence the spaghetti westerns and the spaghetti westerns would go on to influence uh, Chambada. Oh, totally. Hideo Gosha. Hideo Gosha always claimed that for a few dollars more was his point, you know, where he took a reference from from the, the landscapes and the close-ups of the faces. Yeah, so it, it's definitely very a very circular thing and um, you can kind of really see the influences on each other, I think. And Especially since landscape is a huge part of westerns, just these sweeping, yeah, sweeping mountains and yeah, I mean, both genres borrowed liberally from each other over the years. Okay, so my number six we already hit on it was Thirteen Assassins, and uh, I don't think I really have anything else to say on the subject, but uh, definitely worth seeing if you're into violent action films. <laughs> I would say. Not much, other, not, not much else to say about it, but uh, the last 45 minutes are pretty much an epic battle scene of uh, epic proportions. I don't know if you guys have any other comments for the 13 Assassins. No, except I might watch it again after we finish this. Yeah, yeah it should be on Netflix. Head, like, I want to sit down and see it again. I mean, I've been avoiding it for a few years, like you said, in case I've watched, you end up liking it too much or, you know, start losing interest in it. Yeah, that's what I noticed is that I saw it twice in the theater and and I was fully on board as like one of my top samurai films ever. But then when I watched it again later on, it didn't quite hold up, but I mean it's still still definitely a good film. All right, so that's it for this episode. We covered number 10 down to number 6. So, for number 10, Kihachi Akamoto's Sword of Doom. Number 9 is Shintaro Katsu's Final Zadoichi from 1989. Number eight is Takashi Meike's Thirteen Assassins. Number seven is Masake Kobayashi's Samurai Rebellion. Number six is Kahachi Akamoto's Kiru, also known as Kill, in America. Number ten is Masaki Kobayashi's In of Evil, or We Give Our Lives for Nothing. Number nine was The Ghost of Chiba Fufusa Inoki. Number eight was Destiny's Son by Kenji Masumi. Number seven was Third Shadow by Umetsugu Inoue. And number six was Broken Swords by Kazuo Ikihiro. All right. And uh, my bottom five, number 10 was Aragami from 2003. Number nine, Ronin Guy from 1990. Number eight, Mibugi Shiden, or When the Last Sword is Drawn from 2002. Number seven is the new Takashi Miike version of Harakiri, which I don't remember what year that was. It was sometime between 2012 and 2014, I think. And number six, 13 Assassins, Takashi Miike, 2010. All right, that's it for this episode of the podcast. So that's part one of our two-parter on the top ten samurai films of all time. Part two will get you number five to number one for all of us. So look forward to that. There's some good ones there. And again, as always, if you're interested in helping us out, 
please head over to patreon.com slash samurai archives to see what swag you can get for helping us out. And like I always say, every little bit helps. Even a dollar an episode is greatly appreciated. It gets you access to early episodes, access to bonus audio. Again, check it out. Patreon.com slash Samurai Archives. All right, I guess that's about it for today. And stay tuned for part two. See you later.